This morning we're in Isaiah 53. We will continue there. We may be in Isaiah 53 one or two more Sundays. Um, We're not going to rush through it. I'm not going to be a Puritan, but we're not going to rush through it either. So uh, we may be in there a little while because there's so much in Isaiah 53. It's probably the best known, outside of Genesis 1 through 3, it's probably the best known passage in the Old Testament. It tells us many wonderful things about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, to get the context of this, the this is our the people's first glimpse of their Savior, of His salvific work. They were wanting a Savior, but then when Isaiah shows the Savior to them, it's not exactly what they expected, and uh, so they were they were shocked really at Isaiah's description of the Savior. They were expecting a great King to come in glory. And now they realize that he is going to be a suffering servant, which is not what they expected. Now last week, I, want to, I need to go back and clear up a couple of things. When we were in the first stanza of the servant song, the last verse talking about Jesus and his crucifixion, the English Standard Version says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And Charles brought up the fact that a couple of translations would say he would startle many nations or astonish. Um, Now, there's no translations done that's reputable, committee translations, since the 20th century, beginning in the 20th century, that uses the word startle, or anything other than sprinkle. I checked the ASV 1901 translation, the New King James, the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard, the NIV, and the Christian Standard, and they all have sprinkle. And I think only one had a marginal note that it could be startled. Okay, I looked this word up in the Gold Standard Lexicon, Hebrew Lexicon, Brown, Driver, and Briggs. And they say the word is sprinkle. They don't even mention the word startle. This same word is translated as sprinkle in Leviticus 4. If somebody can look up Leviticus 4 for me. Um, And also Exodus 29, 21. And when somebody gets to Leviticus 4, 6, just read that to us. Okay. okay. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. Okay. The word is obviously there. It has to be translated as sprinkle. Uh, same word, same Hebrew word. In Exodus 29, 21, anybody have that? I have it. Okay. And you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments, on his sons and the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be hallowed and his sons and his sons' garments with him. All right. The sprinkling is used to sanctify, to anoint the priest for service. 
And so we see that Jesus, his blood is going to sprinkle many nations. Okay, so I just wanted to cover that because that was brought up last week. Anybody have anything to add to that? The footnote in the Geneva Bible says regarding that phrase that he shall spread his word through many nations. That's what will happen. Sprinkling is used in the Old Testament for setting apart, for sanctifying, for making fit for service. The righteous are always sprinkled. Okay, now, we, uh, we had gotten really through the uh, next stanza too in Isaiah 53. Um, the last thing I think we covered was where in your notes, I believe the last thing we covered says, it is not surprising that the spiritually depraved people of Israel despised and rejected him. Is that where y'all are in your notes? Mm -hmm. They despised and rejected him. Okay, now, let's turn to, um, let's see how long it took for them to despise and reject him. Turn to Luke chapter 4. Now that was eventually because they despised and rejected him. Jerusalem and the temple were eventually destroyed. So this is pretty important here. Now, if you look at 24.14, I mean, excuse me, 4.14 in Luke chapter 4 verse 14. Remember, Jesus had just been out in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And then in verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And then in verse 16, he came to Nazareth. Now, that's his hometown. All right, situation now, local boy makes good. He comes from a town that is despised. And the saying is, nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. Well, here we have a local boy that made good. Something good finally came out of Nazareth. Let's see what happens. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and it was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And this is a passage in Isaiah that we've covered. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All right, Luke tells us he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. Okay, remember his prestige of uh, all the things John the baptizer had said about him. So these people in the synagogue probably knew the background here. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Alright? To them, that probably seems, Who is this arrogant little teacher? 
He doesn't even have any letters. All right, and then in verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. All right, at first they were okay with it. Then he said, is this not Joseph's son? And that's where they started saying, who is he to say that, All right? And Jesus says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your household, hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So Jesus knew he was going to be despised and rejected right there. Now this is what infuriated them. This is what just made them go nuclear. Jesus says, said in verse 25, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came across all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them he wasn't sent to any widows in Israel he was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow a um, a uh, non-Israelite a Gentile she was a widow. And then he goes on to say, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. So we see here the prophets. Elijah was going to the Gentiles. They didn't like that. The prophet was going to the Gentiles. What are you saying, Jesus? All right, when they heard these things, all the synagogue was, were filled with wrath, although they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. So right off the bat, it didn't take Jesus long to really make them mad, did it? They despised and they rejected him right off the bat. They could, they could tell what Jesus was saying. That, you know, the Gentiles are going to be coming in. The message is not just for the Hebrews. It's for the Gentiles too. So they despised him and rejected him right off the bat. Okay, any further comment on that? I think it's helpful to keep that in the context of uh, the long history of these people continually disobeying the Lord and turning after other gods, uh, worshiping idols, um, making common cause with pagan nations. And uh, this is sort of the culmination uh, of what will become God's final judgment upon them, which is what we've been talking about in the book of Revelation. Yeah. So that's why in verse 3 of Isaiah 53 that he was despised and rejected by men, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. All right, so now we'll move to the third part here. Um, 4 through 6, the servant's significance. 
And this is actually the heart of the prophecy. So uh, we'll start back there with Elaine today. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay. This is called the servant's significance, according to the outline that I'm using, which is of uh, Ortland. Uh, the cross is the center point of all history. And I think I read from John Stott some quotes last week uh, from people showing that that is. Now, you're not going to find that in your public school, book, school history books. On the first page, it doesn't say the cross of Christ is the central point of all history. You won't find that. But according to God's revelation, the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the center point of history. Um, this is the heart of the prophecy in your notes. It teaches the satisfaction made to the justice of God and the substitutionary atonement. Now, our catechism says that he, when he was crucified, he satisfied divine wrath. Now, um, as we read in, if you turn back to Romans chapter 3, renew your acquaintance with that, just a little bit of review. Three twenty one is where I'll start. I'll just to get the context. But now the righteousness of God has been mani manifested apart from the law of the, and the prophets, although the prophets law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ redeems us. He paid a price. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. All right, so Jesus' death on the cross propitiated God. Propitiation has to do with wrath. God's wrath is upon sinners. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. So he... Turn, God, he absorbed, so to speak, the wrath of God. The wrath that belongs should have rightly fallen on us, fell upon Jesus Christ. And so we see that he bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, 
smitten by God, afflicted, wounded for our transgressions, and crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. So all these things is what Jesus did to propitiate the wrath of God. All of God's wrath for all of the elect for every age was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, we read at the end of chapter 52 the wrath of man. The wrath of God is much worse. Now, we we should be telling sinners, you think you're suffering wrath here from people. You wait to judgment there. You wait till you die. And you will see the full wrath of God unleashed upon you. When Jesus was sweating drops of blood in Gethsemane, it was because of these verses. It wasn't because of getting beat up by men. So here we have that. The substitutionary atonement where Jesus makes satisfaction to the justice of God. God cannot overlook sin. He, he can't just say, yeah, don't worry about it. That would, God would be denying himself if he overlooks sin. And liberals say he does. Alright, so on the cross, here in your notes, he took our griefs and sorrows upon himself. And I'll show you, show you there where the fulfillment is. <clears throat> he bore our punishment in our place. Um, Kim, look up for us please. 1 Peter 2. 23 through 25. And then he suffered the Lord's wrath that we deserve, according to verse 6. And go ahead when you get there, 1 Peter 2, 23. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed it to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bear our sins in his body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live in righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Okay. He, um, he bore our sins in his body on the tree or on the cross. And by his wounds you are healed. So that's the only thing that keeps us out of hell right now. It's what Jesus did on the cross. Um, so we have the substitutionary atonement. We have Jesus um, satisfying the wrath of God in those verses. And uh, our condition is mentioned in verse 6. We've gone astray. Every one of us are sinners. But the Lord has laid on him, not on us, Punishment for our iniquity. Very heart of the Christian message. Okay, anybody have anything to add to that? <coughs> Bill? A little stanza, yeah. Earlier talking about translations, I think this is another place where people should be aware in Romans 3.25 it uses the word propitiation and you mentioned what that's about. Um, some of the modern translations, they don't like that term because they don't like the way they think well honestly they don't like the way God described himself and so th that word has been erased from the text 
and they come up with other ways of saying, you know, his sacrifice, they don't like the word propitiation because it means satisfying wrath. Um, the New American Standard, the ESV, the New King James all retain that word. I don't know about the NIV. The Christian Standard does not. And some of the others don't. But whenever you see something like that, it's worth asking, well, why would they simply obliterate that word when that's exactly what it means to satisfy uh, a, a wrathful justice? Good point. Um, the liberal translations usually use expiation, which is just, um, I remember right, just turning God, just, um, I don't know. I can't remember what expiation means on the spot. But if you see expiation, that's not the good translation of the Greek word. It's propitiation. Okay, anything else on that before we go to verses 7 through 9? All right, Alanda, will you read for us uh, Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9, please? This is the servant's suffering. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered <clears throat> that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Okay, this is the servant's suffering according to Ortland's outline. Keep in mind John 10, 16 and 17 where Jesus says, I lay my life down. I have authority to lay my life down. I have authority to take my life up again. All right, any notes here? With all that he went through, he did not open his mouth, according to verse 7. He was our substitute, and he represented us. So why did Jesus not open his mouth? Was he afraid he was going to get in trouble? Okay, there may be more than just this reason, but this is the one I'm going to present before you. All right, so he was our substitute. He represented us. Our guilt was laid on him. And uh, Laura, I won't, if you would look up for us, please, um, Romans 3.19. All right, our guilt was laid on him. Therefore, he could not open his mouth. He had no defense to offer because of where he stood legally. Jesus was representing us. Now what's our condition? Read Romans 3.19 for us, please. Okay, Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Okay. Every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. So Jesus being our representative, he had no defense legally. He couldn't say anything. No matter what they said, would have been true of us. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones made this comment one time. One way you can tell a real Christian is his mouth is stopped. When you bring an accusation against him, his mouth is stopped. <clears throat> All right, and you notes, even though he was bearing the sin of others and he himself was sinless, verse 8 shows that the people did not understand that. They thought he was suffering because he was a bad person. They did not realize that this was a substitutionary atonement. The people didn't understand that, and even after he died, he was still treated as a wicked person. They made his grave with the wicked. Now, that he did not, he wasn't buried with anyone else, but he was crucified between two wicked men. Um, his burial seems to be both the end of his estate of humiliation and the beginning of his exaltation. He was buried, of course, being buried and returning to the dust is no means of exaltation. But then he was buried in a rich man's tomb. So we kind of see a transition in his burial between his humiliation and his exaltation. All right, any further comments on that before we go to the last section? Yeah, what would you say is not speaking up? How, how, how does that correlate to him not speaking before Pilate? Was he thinking more of what he was actually going to be doing on our behalf and the guilt, or was it more a matter of don't cast your pearl before swine? The pilot didn't deserve an answer. <laughs> and yeah. wouldn't have understood anyways. Say probably both of the above, yeah. I didn't even think of that, but yeah, that makes sense. Chamber room court. Yeah. Nothing was done properly. Wrong procedure was used. No procedure was used except, you know, they played Monopoly. Whatever whatever the rule whatever rule is convenient, that's the rule we'll use. And here with both politicians, too. Yeah. Laura? What was the blank? I missed it. Verse. He had no. What's the office? Defense. 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 Yeah. Okay. Um, Aubrey? Not Aubrey. Um, Delaney, I'm sorry. Oh, boy. Delaney, will you read for us, please, verses 10 through 12? All right, this is the fifth and last stanza that's labeled the servant success, according to Ortland. And Derek Kinder 
states this concerning these verses. This stanza, in this stanza, vindication is complete. The persecutors fade from view to reveal the Lord and the servant, the ultimate doers of what has been done. Okay, all this was according to to God's will, according to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Chase, if you look up for us, Acts 2.23. Portland states of this, the death of Jesus Christ was more than a human plot. It was a divine strategy. Everything went according to the divine strategy. Christ becomes a guilt offering. All right, let's read Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hand of lawless men. Yeah, he was definitely delivered up according to God's eternal plan. It was no accident. Jesus says, I lay my life down, I'll take it up again. All right, so Christ becomes a guilt offering. Uh, You didn't pick it up in the translation that Delaney read, but in the ESV and other current translations, it says in verse um, 10, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong it for days. Um... Let's see. Does somebody's translation says makes his soul an offering for guilt? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I, I have the first before it was I have the first ESV that came out and it was later revised a little bit. And it should be an offering for guilt. What does yours read? Sin. Yeah, mine says guilt. Yeah. Okay. So uh you always ought to read to make your notes out of the same Bible you read. But anyway, it was a guilt offering. Who can name me the five offerings God prescribes in Leviticus? They, they all point to Jesus Christ, something about his work. Now, the offerings prescribed in Leviticus were shadows and types of what Jesus would do. And they were meant to teach the people something about the coming Messiah. And Isaiah specifically here says that it's a guilt offering, and in the Hebrew it is guilt offering. It's it's not sin offering. There's a little bit of nuance between the sin and the guilt offering. Okay. um, Anybody name four of them? Three of them? Three of the offerings? Grain, one of them? What's that? Grain? Grain was one of them, yeah. Or cereal. That was the only non-bloodletting one. There's the heave offering. Yeah, that wasn't one of the five major ones. I don't want to cheat, but I know all five of them. You want to read them for us? Burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering, guilt offering. Okay. And like I said, they all point to the Messiah's work. 
And this one specifically is mentions the guilt offering. The nuance of the guilt offering is satisfaction. Um, when you did somebody wrong, like if you stole $10 from them and they found you out, you would make a guilt offering and pay them back 40 or whatever, fourfold. So you make satisfaction plus on a guilt offering, it was for the feelings of guilt. You didn't even have to do anything. If you just felt guilty for some reason, you offered a guilt offering. So this was a guilt offering. Now, on the Day of Atonement, the uh, mercy seat was sprinkled by the blood of the sacrifice. Every day, mercy, every year, on the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice was killed. The priest would took some of the blood and sprinkled it on many places, and one of them was the mercy seat. Now, Jesus Christ... When he's crucified, when he ascends into heaven, he sprinkles heaven, so to speak. The true heaven. The shadowy heaven, the high, high priest of the old covenant was sprinkled with blood. Christ sprinkles heaven with his own blood. The reason for that is that the people of Israel, their sins were so terrible, they defiled even the most holy place. They defiled even the mercy seat. And it had to be sprinkled with blood, cleansed once a year. Our sins have been so bad, Christ has to sprinkle heaven. Your sins defile heaven, according to the book of Hebrews. And I want to read something really good here about this from a um, Gerhardus Voss, which is, a, to me, the best theologian outside of the Bible and I want to read this passage to you because I thought it was so good um, he goes in a question and answer format um, and the question is can it be proved from the New Testament that the work of Christ includes sacrifice in the Old Testament sense and he says the entire epistle to the Hebrews is full of this sense. In it, Christ is called priest six times and high priest twelve times. It is said of the Old Testament priest and sacrifices that they were, quote, a shadow of the good things to come, unquote. That's Hebrews 10.1. The reality, the body, is in Christ. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek that is, quote, not according to physical descent, but according to the power of an indestructible life. That's Hebrews 7.16. Forever priest, prophet, and king together, Psalm 110. The same Christ who is high priest is also the sacrifice. Christ is also the sacrifice. For Hebrews 10.10 10 speaks of the offering of the body of Christ accomplished once. Christ can be priest and sacrifice at the same time because even where his human life enters into death, his divine life still continues. The deity of Christ did not die. For he offered himself through the eternal spirit. 
The sacrifice of Christ is a definitive act which is not to be repeated, according to Hebrews 7.27. It is comparable to the killing of the sacrificial animal by the typological high priest on the Day of Atonement. It is brought before God because Christ himself enters into heaven just as the high priest entered the Holy of Holies. It corresponds to the covenant sacrifice of Exodus 24, wherefore Christ is called the mediator of the new covenant. That the sprinkling with the blood of Christ was necessary before God is expressed in Hebrews 9.23, such that the heavenly things had to be purified. The heavenly things were defiled by sin. They had to be purified by Christ. That is, their guilt is present in the dwelling place of God before his face in the tabernacle. And that guilt must be removed from heaven before the people of God can enter into heaven. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, that's probably what he's talking about. He is removing filth and guilt from heaven so that we can enter into it. The transgressions committed under the first covenant demanded atonement by death if the promise of the eternal inheritance would be obtained. That is, the guilt of the covenant of works must first be cleared away before the blessings of the covenant can be imparted. Where there is no sacrifice for sin, there is a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire, according to 1027. During his earthly life, Christ appeared with sin, that is, as a sacrifice upon which sin was transferred. But he will appear in heaven again without sin. He will appear again without sin. And then the final paragraph of this, real quick, it's only about two, two lines. If we briefly summarize all of this, we obtain the result that according to the epistle of Hebrews, Christ is the true only, eternal, kingly, self-sacrificing, atoning toward God, substituting and actually guilt-removing high priest. Just to give you some kind of idea of what Jesus has done for you. Your guilt, your own guilt, defiles, defied, would um, defile heaven and make it a place of stench if it wasn't the fact that Jesus Christ had gone before and cleansed it by his guilt offering. All right, let's wrap it up here. In verse 11, substitution is taught. Christ made satisfaction through his suffering after lifelong obedience. And being a sin-bearing substitute for the elect. And then finally, verse 12 states that all of his people share in his victory achieved at the cross. And it states that Christ poured out his soul. He was in charge. He poured it out. Nobody took it. He was numbered with his transgressors. He was crucified between two others. And he intercedes for them. And praise be to God, his cry is for forgiveness, not revenge, like the blood of Abel.
All right, that wraps up Isaiah 53. Anybody have anything to add? We, if you do, hold it for next week because we have to wrap it up in prayer. And uh, Mike, will you lead us in prayer, please? Our Father in heaven, we 